Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, it's late, so what have you seen? Okay, so I saw, and we'll be posting, It's it won't be up by the time this goes up, obviously, but uh, uh, I saw Michael Camino's or Chimino, I, 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 how do you say it? I say Chimino, but I have okay. no uh, reason to believe that's right. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll stick with the hard C. Uh, Michael Camino's The Sicilian, a movie uh, made in 1987. Uh, originally, unsurprisingly, originally uh, Camino wanted it to be like two and a half hours, uh, sure. and then the studio cut that down because I, he didn't have a great deal of pull with the studios by 1987. <laughs> yeah. um, they said, haven't you done enough? <laughs> something like that, yes. Um, but uh, I think he wanted to edit uh, footage from Heaven's Gate into it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, and it's about this uh, this real guy in uh, 1940s, post-war Italy, um, named uh, Salvatore Giuliano. And he was, he was, he was a Robin Hood type. Um, he would rebel against the government, which was a combination of the church work, working with the mob, working with, you know, and he was, uh, he was fighting for Sicily, which was, uh, not super, not independent from Italy, but still people weren't allowed to own land. Like there was a lot of mm-hmm. stuff going on. And he was known for being, uh, some of this I know from the Wikipedia page because the film does not spell things out very well. <laughs> um, not that I need a movie to spell it out, but by the end of two and a half hours, I should get a general idea of what the deal is. Um, but yeah, and so uh, so he was he was like this bandit type, and he, I think he was on the cover of Time magazine. Like he he got a lot of press, and he was like one of the first, uh, one of the last, you know, uh, Dillinger types. Although he wasn't necessarily a Robin Hood type. This guy was a freedom fighter, and he he had the world press on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just about him you know, fighting, uh, oppression and trying to maneuver the, 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 the mob and the church and all these people working together and people betraying him and stuff like that. Uh, the movie is fine from his technical standpoints, Michael Camino. And so, you know, he knows how to compose a shot. He knows how to, how a sequence, uh, an effective action or suspense sequence can be put together. But in the overall, who gives a shit like this thing? Not because the guy wasn't important. He really was as the, as every character is constantly telling me, um, to the point where, and people just know him as Giuliano. And there's just something about the way it's, it's almost like this thing was sponsored by like the Giuliano board of tourism or something like that, because (laughs) the way other characters talk about him, they just like pump him up so much. And there's just, it's like, He's Giuliano. What are we going to do? You know, and just like, it's like, oh, that scamp, that lovable scamp who shot that barber in the face. Um, that's a thing that happens. And, uh, but here's the thing. I could live with all of that because we have some good supporting performances. You got your Terrence Stamp in there. You got Joss Ackland doing a really good, uh, turning in a really good performance, which makes me think I need to see more of him. I've only seen him in a couple of things. And John Turturro in an early role. And, uh, so all these people are perpetually talking about how great this Giuliano guy is, but he is played by Christopher Lambert. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. Uh, well, there are a number of problems. I think the script is pretty clunky, but, uh, but Christopher Lambert is just a, a human void. There is just nothing going on there. He does not have, uh, 
he has kind of an odd accent. You know, he's an American, he's like an American Frenchman playing an Italian. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of layers there. And he just, he doesn't have charisma. And according to everybody else, this is a very charismatic, dynamic guy. You know, he is certain, he's not T.E. Lawrence. I'll say that. And Did I ever tell you about the movie, the Larry the Cable Guy movie, Witless Protection? You have mentioned That's it before. the yes. second Larry the Cable Guy movie, not yes. Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector. Indeed, yes. Where he has two jobs, apparently. Right. Uh, but Witless He's Protection. He's a moonlighting uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. health inspector. <laughs> um, Witless Protection features Peter Stormare as an English aristocrat. That's okay. So it's... Peter Stormare, whose first language is not English to begin with, yes. trying to put on an accent. A very proper one, no less, I yeah. assume. It's, it's madness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this thing, the movie is just, it has a couple of good sequences here and there, and again, some good supporting performances. I won't lay it all on, on Christopher Lambert. He, sh- he shouldn't have been cast, but also just the way the story unfolds is just very strange, and they just... They're not really that in there's only there's like maybe 20, maybe like 20 minutes right in the middle where they're really interested in exploring Giuliano as a as a flawed guy. Mm. But the rest of it, it is just filleting this guy constantly, sometimes literally where like a he'll like rob a duchess. And the first thing she wants is to have sex with him. Like, it's just it's ridiculous. This movie, um, it was destroyed by critics at the time, uh-huh. but it was also like 25 minutes of it was cut out. So they got put back in. So it's a Blu-ray release by shout factory. And, uh, and I know that some people, uh, what's his name? F- FX Feeney. Is that his name? Okay. Yeah. Uh, he said like, this is a, this movie's like a, the, the director's cut is this like secret masterpiece. And I don't know what he is talking <laughs> about. It is just such a forgettable film. And it is, I was upset that I watched it. I was upset that I volunteered to review it. No, thank you. And I'm, I'm upset that I still have to review it. I wish this could be my review, but no, I actually have to sit down and think about this damn thing and write something, write at least 800 words. No, thank well, you. Um, who says at least 800 words? Uh, isn't that our, isn't that our minimum? No, not at all. What is, what, is, what do you think our minimum is? 400. Really? Yeah. Wow. Good to know. All right, sorry, Sicilian. You're not getting. <laughs> I rarely much. Yeah, I rarely write eight hundred oh, words. Oh, if sometimes I'll I'll turn in like seven hundred words. I'm like I can't think of anything else to write because I like the flow of my review. And it's like, well, if David gets mad, he gets mad. Meanwhile, I'm like three hundred over. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. No, no, yeah. Uh, you think I'm self indulgent? <laughs> um. Anyway, that's a little behind the scenes talk. Anyway, uh. Speaking of writing, I wrote, I don't know, seven. I, I wrote a d- decent amount of words about another Shout Factory release. We review a lot of Shout Factory releases because Shout Factory is nice enough to send us a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. I like Shout Factory a lot. And Scream Factory, which is their horror imprint. Yeah. That's what this was. I watched a 1983 horror anthology called Nightmares. Okay. Uh, four short films, all directed by Joseph Sargent, who's best known for the original Taking a Pelham 123. Yeah, damn right. Um, and he also did Jaws the Revenge. Well, they can't all be winners. Um, and this, so the story here is that apparently these were created for an NBC horror anthology TV series that never, never materialized. Okay. So they put them together and turned them into a theatrical release called Nightmares. And it is, uh, um, f- it's four movies 
which is essentially two good ones bookended by two bad ones. Okay. Uh, the, the first one is, uh, Christina Raines, whom I like, um, you know, her from Nashville. Uh, she's the woman who doesn't want to dress like twins anymore. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, she plays a woman who, uh, is, who needs cigarettes and, uh, decides to, (laughs) (laughs) decides to go out and buy cigarettes. Um, despite the fact that there is a crazed, uh, escaped homicidal mental patient on the loose. Well, I'm sure everything turns out fine in the Valley. This, this one's called terror in Topanga. (laughs) Um, the, um, the, the cast is, uh, so it's, it's Christina Raines. It's a, um, uncredited for some reason. William Sanderson plays a, mm. uh, gas station attendant and the escaped mental patient is played by none, o- none other than Lee Ving. Hey, all from right. Fear. And of course from Mr. Body uh, from Clue, <laughs> Mr. Body from yeah. Clue. Uh, that's one of the dumb ones. It's, it's like kind of, it builds up and then it like has, it's really anticlimactic and then she decides to quit smoking at the end. <laughs> like that, it's kind of a dumb thing, but the second and third ones are the good one. Good ones. The second one is called the Bishop of battle. Emilio Estevez. Um, this is a year before repo man. So this is a young Emilio Estevez playing kind of in a repo man type role where he's like a punk rock guy, yeah. but he's obsessed with arcade games, specifically this game, the Bishop of battle. Um, and he becomes so obsessed that he's like alienating his friends and family. And he's so obsessed at one point, the arcade owner unplugs the machine and kicks him out. He's like, I got to close up. So after he leaves, I mean, breaks back into the arcade to play this game and try to beat the high level. And of course it turns out this game is like, there's, there's some more shit going on with this game. And mm. once he gets to the highest level, things get freaky. Is uh, it like a last Starfighter kind of thing? Uh, a little more sinister, I okay, think. Fair enough. But, um, uh, I actually really liked that one. I liked, I really love, I really love young Emilio Estevez, uh, in things like Rufo Man on this. And I, I remember uh, liking him in the outsiders because he yeah. plays kind of this goofy character and yeah, just, yeah, I, I, I find myself wondering, like, I don't like, re- I think we don't like respectable Emilio Estevez, but what happened to like, why isn't he in movies anymore <laughs> to paraphrase a dumb family guy joke from a few years ago? Do you remember that? Uh, I do not. It's just Stewie's idea of small talk is to say, what happened to Gina Davis? She used to be in movies and now she's not in movies anymore. <laughs> so I always like the phrasing of that. I think, I think there are just some people, this is a thing that I've been, that I was thinking about the other day. There are some people that are huge in a certain decade and then they're good. They're good actors, good directors, whatever it is. But as the times move on, they leave everything associated with that 10 years behind. And they're just like, oh, and they, and they will often look down on that 10 years. And if you are an icon of that 10 years, I think they just feel like they have no use for you. And so I think Emilio Estevez was big in like the 80s and early 90s. And I think so many people look down on those types of, you know, men at work uh, and the Mighty Ducks and that sort of thing. And I think young they, guns, young guns yeah, I think they look down on that. And so they just distance themselves. You know, I was like, there was a time when William Hurt was like the most respectable actor. He was nominated for an Oscar three years in a row. I think he won his second year um, or maybe his first. I don't recall, but like he was like the it guy. And now, you know, like he was, he was every bit as big as any of these other, same with like Kevin Klein, just for whatever reason, like the eighties, maybe even more so than the nineties. There were just actors that were 
as big as you can get and they are, you know, nowhere to be found except for like the, a bit role here and there. Well, I, maybe a, uh, Quentin Tarantino needs to come along and write a juicy role for Emilio Estevez and revitalize his acting career. Uh, yeah. cause I've always been a fan. Uh, even his small and un, also uncredited role in Mission Impossible. That's right. Which I like. Um, all right. So then the, the third one is called The Benediction, and it stars Lance, Hendricks, Lance Henriksen. And it is essentially a supernatural twist on Duel, oh, <laughs> the nice. Steven Spielberg movie, where Lance Henriksen is a disillusioned priest who decides to give up and leave his parish and then fi- and uh, then finds himself stalked and terrorized on the road by a gigantic black pickup truck that the movie very heavily implies is driven by Satan himself. Nice. Uh, that's a cool one. And then the last one, if you seriously, like if you get, if you're a horror fan, get this Blu-ray. It's fun. And then they very conveniently put the dumbest one at the end. So you can just skip it. Nice. Uh, it, even though it has a good cast, it ha- it's, um, Veronica Cartwright is the star. And then her husband is played by, um, I'm forgetting his first name. Is it Richard Masor? M-A-S-U-R. Yeah. Um, and basically they're like, she's a she's a housewife a well-to-do suburban couple he's kind of a an arrogant kind of sexist uh workaholic husband um she's uh worried that there's rats they have a rat infestation and then the exterminator being an exterminator of course he is well versed in uh medieval german folklore obviously so he tells her you this is no ordinary rat you have the something german german like giant unkillable rat that's here um to teach you lessons or terrorize you or something like that. And then it just, it's just stupid. It's just like, it feels like it goes on way longer than the other four because so much of it is just Richard Mazur, like walking around the house with a shotgun, trying to kill this giant rat and Veronica Cartwright being like, you can't kill it. The exterminator said you can't kill it. That's like the entire last half of this story. A panicky Veronica Cartwright. (laughs) That's not, (laughs) that's not the one I think of. Uh, yeah, that one's pretty dumb, but it's called nightmares and it's, it's definitely fun. And I like, that's a good thing about anthologies is you don't have to watch all of them. Yeah, that's true. Does it does it make you wish that they had actually gone through with this TV show? Uh, I don't know. I feel like there was a glut of those at the time because there true. was like, um, well, uh, let's see, what were there? So like, amazing stories, was amazing one. stories. There was Tales from the Dark Side, which is great. Okay, um, I don't think super, I saw any of those. Super low budget. Okay, um, th- but those are awesome. Uh, they brought then, back the outer t- limits in the early nineties. And then so this is in the eighties. And after that, there would be tales from the crypt. And was that late eighties, early nineties when that Le- yes. came out? And then, yeah, there was, um, outer limits came back in the nineties. And there, like probably, there was one and more. There was, uh, yeah, there was more. one on ABC that I don't know anything about called dark room. Okay. Um, and the only reason I've heard about it is cause it's a, apparently among horror fans, this thing nightmares, it's a common misconception that these were shorts that were made for dark room and never aired, oh, okay. but that's not true. I, uh, the producer talks about it on the commentary. They were pr- produced for NBC for a show that never ended up happening. Okay. Well, and then there was also like an anthology Friday the 13th an anthology, uh, nightmare on Elm that's street. Right, yeah. So yeah, there was, it was a big thing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. We need to, uh, is there, is there anything like that now? In terms of horror anthology, there's, I mean, there's like there's American Horror Story, which is, which is an entire season. Yeah, yeah. But there was the Showtime Masters of Horror. It's been almost ten years true, since yeah. those. And then um, was it 
TNT, who did the Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the Stephen King. Uh, oh ten, gosh, I don't even remember. Ten short, you know, Nightmares and Dreamscapes is yeah, one yeah. of his books that has short stories in it. They did a ten part thing, but that was even that's a mini series. Yeah, like, um, yeah, we don't have any. Speaking uh, of William Hurt, he was in one of those. We don't have any horror anthologies uh, that like, uh, or not not necessarily an anthology, but we don't have like this ongoing like three or four season thing where each yeah. is its own. Uh, there's Goosebumps. You remember Goosebumps, the TV show? No, I had never read or watched. It's on Goosebumps. Netflix. You can catch up on it. It is um, not good. God, if anyone knows where you can find Tales from the Dark Side, it's uh, it's a blast. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Yeah, they're all super low budget. In one of them, Divine plays a genie. <laughs> That's one that always <laughs> sticks out to me. I, I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> Anyway. Are you afraid of the dark? Did you ever watch that? I, I didn't grow up. Uh, rich. That was a Nickelodeon. That was. Uh, that wasn't one of those rich kids. That's well, my joke that I always make to my wife because she, whenever she references like salute your shorts or whatever, oh, yeah, like yeah. stuff that I never saw, I say like I didn't grow up rich. But I was literally the only family that I knew who didn't have cable. Yeah. <laughs> you just had jerk parents. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. See what you should say instead. Uh, rather than try to make me feel bad for my privilege, my uh, oil industry privilege, which paid for our cable, uh, you should be like, oh, I'm sorry, my parents were jerks. Yeah. So um, it's, the, the thing is, as soon as I moved out of the house, they got cable and they put a pool table in the basement. <laughs> like, like they were just waiting for oh, yeah. me and my sister to be out so they could spoil my younger brothers. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Yeah, because I forgot that you have younger siblings. Yeah, what's the... I have only younger siblings. That's true. You're the oldest. The eldest, I like to say. The wisest, yeah. I think. Uh, that's not true. You're, you're, like you're a family elder now. I like that. Yeah, that's not true. I guess that's not true. Okay. Next for me is a rewatch. Uh, so you'll hear me talk briefly about this at, uh, uh, on, the next, uh, on the next BP episode, which we've recorded already. You can also hear me uh, bitch about it on the most recent More Than One Lesson. Oh, wow. Boy, did I not expect people to respond to my opinion on Captain America Civil War as negatively as they so did. So you saw it again? No, no, no. Oh. Hang on. Uh, I had people, old friends from college who would like weigh in on Facebook because I posted a link to it on Facebook mm-hmm. saying like, saying like, uh, Hey, I would like to, it's like, I think you can't let yourself have fun. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. That's not, I hate that shit. I really hate that. Like it just bothers me so much. And so, so I responded with, uh, and this is, and this is a genuine friend and stuff like that. And we had a good conversation afterwards, but, um, but it's just like, come, come on. That's a t- that's so reductive and so frustrating. And but also, so, a person who is not a critic probably doesn't recognize how often we hear that bullshit. Yes, there is that is true. Yes, you know. But when I he- what I hear when someone says that is they're saying you're probably right, but I don't want to think about it. So, uh, potentially, yes. And so, and then I also heard people. You know, there are people who said like it's like you probably just need to see it again. You know, it's like I. And then someone. This guy's a nice guy. I only know him through Facebook, through another podcast. Um, but uh, he's not another podcaster. He's a, f- a fan of this other podcast. Okay. But anyway, um, and he said something to the effect of, uh, it's like, it's like maybe you should watch it again. He goes, I often find that when I watch a movie a second time, I see lots of this. Yeah, I know how to watch a movie. I get it. But anyway, so 
as I responded to the first guy, I one of the things that I had said is that like it's like I love a lot of these Marvel movies. I loved Age of Ultron, and I am the minute I said I'm like I'm going to rewatch Age of Ultron, which I did, <laughs> and I love it as much as I ever did. I'm uh, glad you said that because I also have uh, seen it twice. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not a perfect film. There's some storytelling uh, issues, but I love the character of Ultron. I love what they, you know, we we have actual character tension between like Captain America and Iron Man in this that is theoretically paid off in civil war, but I don't think it actually is, uh, at least not to the extent that this movie sets up. And yeah, like I could rewatch. I love Avengers. I love Iron um, Man. No, I haven't seen civil war or, um, winter soldier. So I I think you'd like winter soldier. I can't really speak to the Russos, but, um, I don't know. Are they writers as well? Yes. Okay. Um, is it, do you think Joss Whedon is just as a writer, someone who's more interested in psychology than the Russos are? And that just makes, gives you more to hold on to. I don't, I don't know. I think it might be, cause that's the thing. I like the Russos. Like I know them as guys that were big in, uh, on community. Like they wrote and directed episodes of community. Well, and that's an ensemble. So, so I, I right. was going to say, well, maybe he knows how to deal with, but aren't they more as stylists more. for community? Yeah, probably because community, which is the American successor to spaced, right? Yeah, uh, because it did because um, they well, hey, they tried to do spaced here and apparently it was terrible. Mm. No one saw it. I guess you, I think you can watch the. I think someone posted the, tr- the pilot online anyway, mm. but in the sense that episode to episode, it could be a parody of a different genre. Sure. Um, and so that seems like more of a playground for a stylist, which is not a yeah. like. I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but maybe in terms of your interests, I guess what I'm saying, I'm just, I'm just, uh, uh, you know, um, pumping up my boy, Joss Whedon and saying that maybe his interest in psychology is something that's more interesting to you. I do think honestly that cause I was on, I was recently on out now with Aaron and Abe talking about civil war. We had a good conversation. I was once again in the minority there. They both liked the movie. But we kind of worked out some things that, like, I don't think Thor the Dark World works out as well as Thor. I don't think, um, as much as I like Winter Soldier, and I I like it a lot, but I don't think that or Civil War are as good as the Avengers. And and I realized that, like, oh, yeah, once you get the TV guys in there, and Joss Whedon started in TV, but he built entire universes, and then he transitioned, but he also made movies and he wrote movies and that kind of thing. And I feel like maybe he was able to think in terms of with the Avengers and Age of Ultron, I think he was able to think in terms of, okay, I need to create an entire tonal mood for this movie. Whereas I wonder if the Russos, my big complaint with Civil War is that it doesn't, f- like, it needs to feel different. People that we like are fighting each other. And wh- why are they fighting each other? These are people. These are good guys, and they're going after each other. The movie needs to feel like it knows that this is a big deal. But if these are guys who are not necessarily the creators of TV shows, but they are directors brought in to realize somebody mm-hmm. else's vision, maybe they're not that interested, or maybe they're not inclined to create a vastly new uh, tonal tapestry for uh, this movie. Whereas I think Joss Whedon, partially because he made some really cl- a couple of really climactic movies, but I think he's more inclined and more able to do that. Because I watch Age of Ultron, it's, pl- it's plenty dark. And I think he understands, like just in the tone, in the feeling of the movie, it just 
feels dark. Um, and I'm not looking for dark, but if the movies, if the if the material requires darkness, it should be right. This brings up the question then: if you've got these, what's what's the official Hollywood term for these things? Uh, expanded universes, yeah, yeah, or whatever. Okay, when the Russos are call, are, are brought in to direct episodes of Community, yeah. right? The way television works. Dan Harmon's still the showrunner, yes. except for one season, right? Right. Do expanded universes need a showrunner? Well, officially they have one, this Kevin Feig guy, or Feige, or however you say it, but I wonder if but perhaps... he seems more like a company man, right? He, he definitely is a company man, but I think he's... If I, I mean, like, an artistic director. Yeah, and honestly, once I saw the Avengers, I felt like, okay, the, the general vibe of these have moved from Jon Favreau, to Joss Whedon, and I feel like, and not that he's in charge of anything, but he's setting the new tone that other that other people need to match. And then he does it again with Age of Ultron, and I think, I don't know, but maybe they do need a central artistic force behind all of these. Yeah. But I don't know. So yeah, I watched Age of Ultron, and I still love it. I really respond to a lot of the character stuff. I really love Ultron. I like what they do with. I love what they do with Hawkeye, and. I don't know. They just, they develop the characters more. I love everything they do with vision and watching it again. I realized they kind of squander the character of vision in uh, civil war. Um, huh. they kind of, they, pro- they vision can't be just another character. Like they set him up as, you know, he's the, he's the guy who casually picks up Thor's hammer. That's a big deal. Yeah. But in this, he's just kind of one other, he's just another fighter. And I feel like that's wrong. There are a lot of things about civil war that I think are wrong. All right. And, and Age of Ultron helped me to really realize that. Speaking of wrong, I saw a not very good movie uh, that comes out in the theaters this weekend called Search Party. Okay. Um, apparently it was made a couple years ago, um, which doesn't necessarily mean a movie's bad just because it sits around for a while. I know that's... Yeah, Quiet Americans sat around for a year and a half, and I yeah. love that movie. Uh, these things happen all the time. Um, but this is... It's just a really tired millionth generation copy of the like sort of uh male centric like young male not young not too young but like arrested development like uh delayed adolescent uh male comedies that we've seen since i don't know in my my review i sort of pinpointed the start of this wave with four-year-old virgin and wedding crashers in 2005 okay um and uh, it just seems now that's it's eleven years later, and uh, the, the the tank is dry. Okay. We're out of gas on this this movie. It's uh, did I say it's called Search Party? Yes, I, think I did. Okay, um, the premise Search is Party USA. Uh, that, um, Thomas Middleditch uh, plays a character who is about to get married to uh, his fiance because that's to, that's to whom you get married. That's how it works. Um, and his two best friends are played by Adam Pally and TJ Miller, which I never realized until they're in the same movie together, but they have the same voice. Hmm. Um, uh, you don't know who Adam Pally is. I do not. <laughs> as I as established uh, in the episode that will come up, that will be posted later. Um, uh, TJ Miller's character becomes convinced this is the wrong move for Thomas Middleditch. And so he storms in and says, and ruins the wedding. Uh, the bride to be, uh, breaks things off, takes the honeymoon in Mexico, 
herself. She's like, I'm going myself. Thomas Middleditch is uh, desperate to reconnect, so he drives down to Mexico, immediately gets carjacked and gets his clothes stolen, so he's stranded in Mexico and naked, and uh, most. And that's essentially the whole first act. And the rest of the movie is Adam Pally and T.J. Miller's character trying to get down to Mexico to rescue him, and it's just a series of wacky adventures. That they so that's go very hangover-ish. It is very hangoverish. Yeah. yeah. Um and it's it's one of those things where it's not the kind of comedy where the like when there's a movie where the jokes are just like bad mm-hmm. like uh for some reason um what was the what was the body switching comedy with uh Ryan Reynolds and the change up Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman uh, like, that sounds right to me. Yes. That sort of thing or like hot pursuit from just last year okay. where it's like desperate and bad jokes. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest, literally the hardest thing in the world for me to watch. I'd watch Sallow 120 days of Sodom again before I'd watch either of those movies because it's so difficult for me to watch jokes that don't work. No. Search party is not that. In, I like, like the idea of combining the two. Like there's someone in Salah who's like too much information. <laughs> Awkward. Uh, <laughs> That's perfect. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah. uh, so search party is not that it's not unfunny so much as it's just not really funny. Yeah. There's, um, you've got a good cast in addition to the three I mentioned, you've got, uh, Jason Manzoukas, John Glazer, Alison Brie, uh, Kristen Ritter, um, Kate McCucci and Ricky Lindholm show up. Uh, Horatio Sands has like two lines. Um, are they funny lines? They're not particularly, that's but it's weird bad. that it's really like, it's like, Oh, that's Horatio Sands. Um, JB smooth is in it. Yeah. And the one thing that like, uh, that is actually funny to me it, with my particular brand of humor. J.B. Smoove plays a Mexican drug lord. Okay. Who is Mexican, but he does not speak Spanish, and he looks and talks exactly like J.B. Smoove. That's, so, that's funny. That's funny to me. That's one of the few jokes that work. But because you've got this great cast, there are things that hit because there's a lot of commitment on their part. There's some good uh, physical comedy. Adam Pally spends uh, a good portion of the time partially paralyzed by tranquilizers um, because Jason Manzoukas uh, shot him up with tranquilizers. This is the part where the car crashes and it's on fire and it's going to blow up and TJ Miller runs away. He's like, come on. And Adam Pally has to like get himself out of the car and is like trying to run away from this car that's about to explode. But he's like all tranquilized up. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good bit. That's not a writing bit. Like that's uh, yeah. literally just all right. A funny actor. Do something this do something funny. Yeah. And yeah. And he does that. And Thomas Middleditch full points for bravery because he spends most of the movie naked and uh, there's nothing left to the imagination. It's all out there. Yeah. It's all out there in many cases. And that's great. I think we need more, uh, uh, equality and parody in, uh, male frontal nudity in movies. So I'm all for, uh, Thomas Middleditch's wang being all over this movie. But, um, it just seems like when it's over at the end of the 90 minutes, it's like, there's no reason for like everyone could have made better use of their time. I guess yeah. there's, there, there's nothing really inspired or original. There's no reason I can really recommend people see search party. That's the thing that always, that gets me more now than I think it maybe ever has is the idea of, of wasted opportunities and wasted resources. Like mm-hmm. you get a cast that good together yeah. for a comedy and it's this middle of the road 
bullshit. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, I left out one of the big names because I was naming people who are known for comedy. Yeah. One of the big names in the movie is Lance Reddick. No. Oh. Uh, who is funny, even though he's not, he's playing, he's Adam Pelly's boss. Uh, oh, and then it reminds me, Brian Husky has a couple scenes mm-hmm. where he is kind of wasted. Because I love Brian Husky, but uh, there's no reason. He doesn't do nothing. All right. That's not good. Next for me is, I mentioned it on the most recent episode that I was uh, working my way through it, and then I finished it. It is called Doddsworth by William Wyler, and it features, among others, uh, Walter Houston as the this uh, the main character, who is this guy who is a... a not necessarily a tycoon, but he has a, a an automobile uh, business, you know that, uh, and it's a smaller business. But he's getting older now. He sells the business off. He has tons of money, so he and his wife are going to go and do what what they always wanted to do, which is they want to tour Europe. And so they, you know, they take a, a an ocean liner across, and and already they, like they these two people clearly love each other like they and they they are in love but just the fact of oh i'm now getting to do whatever i want to do or what i always wanted to do that seems to have seeped into into each character a little bit and so um they start and i i the movie is available on movie by the way and will be probably for another uh i probably 10 days to two weeks. So you, you've got time to seek it out. I highly recommend it. It's William Wyler. Um, but anyway, so, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but, uh, you know, you have like potential romances involving with other people. Um, but the romance doesn't come from an inherent in my, in my opinion, an inherent unhappiness between the couple. It's more just, we haven't done this before. You know, we're doing, we're doing things for ourselves now. And so let's do this as well. And so you get stuff like, uh, David Niven is on the, uh, is on the ocean liner. Mary Astor shows up on the ocean liner. And I think I've only ever seen her before in uh, the Maltese Falcon, you know, and, but then they, they wind up in Paris for a little while and it's just, and then the, the main character, uh, Walter Houston, he's interested in like the touristy stuff. Um, so he's got his guidebook and all that. And he just kind of seems not like an ugly American. He's not an asshole. He's just interested in kind of the standard stuff. Whereas she, his wife is much more interested. And I can't remember the name of the woman who plays his wife, unfortunately, but, um, but she's much more interested in, in seeming like a very sophisticated Parisian, you know, uh, worldly type. And so, he starts to kind of embarrass her a little bit because he's all he's doing is checking out the Eiffel Tower and stuff like that. And so, so these two, it's so interesting. It's, it's like the, this situation reveals cracks in their relationship, but it's not as though the love is false. It's still there, but it's, I don't know, the, like the new freedom of this retirement has the byproduct of causing them to think in terms of total freedom, even if they don't totally realize it. There's a, there's a lot going on emotionally and I'm, and I've, I've come to realize that I'm actually a big fan of Walter Houston. You know, I mean, I know him primarily as the guy from treasure, the Sierra Madre, but also Mm -hmm. devil and Daniel Webster. He does great work in that. I remember liking him in, uh, and then there were none. And then something like this, where he's playing just a straight up dramatic role, and he's playing a guy who is kind of an extrovert and just kind of good-natured, but also there's, as he's 
coming to realize what his life is now and maybe potentially what it always was, but he never acknowledged it. He really is doing some great work. I, it's, it's a really, really great movie and one that very much my, my exposure to William Wyler is somewhat limited, but you know, best years of our lives is one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. And this feels like that. It feels like a movie that is very modern in its sensibilities, like exploring potential unhappiness in a marriage. And this came out in like the mid thirties. So it's, it's a really good movie and I think people would enjoy it and it is available on movie movie.com slash battleship. Yes. Check that out uh, for a free month. Um, and the uh, actress who plays the wife is Ruth Chatterton. Okay. Uh, final thing I saw uh, movie wise before we get into TV and well, you have another movie than we go to TV. Uh, I watched a um, somewhat recent uh, criterion Blu-ray release that I'll be reviewing for the site, uh, an Italian film from 1949 called bitter rice. And it is terrific. Okay. It is so good. Um, it is, uh, kind of a socially conscious neorealist movie, but it's also a crime thriller. Nice. Um, it starts with, uh, a couple, um, on the run because they've just stolen some jewels. Uh, and they, the, the man, it's like they're, they're chasing the man, not the woman. So he hands her the jewels and tells her to go hide, hide out. Um, um, for, for a while, lay low until he catches up with her. And so she ends up going and working in the, uh, Northern Italy rice fields, which is, this is where it gets into a little bit of docudrama and, and shining a light on, um, this is a real way of life for a lot of Italian women, um, who, uh, uh, go up and work for a few months uh, every year, uh, in the rice fields. Um, uh, and, and it is a real plight of some of them are sort of uh, exploited workers and and uh, a lot of them are poor. They come from all different walks of life. And so you're seeing this actual sort of uh, a lot of it is almost documentary style um, uh, of, of this life. Uh, but then you've also got the drama going on. If this woman has a secret and one of the other women finds out about the jewels and then the guy comes back um, and that sets off, and that that sets off a whole a whole thing because he wants to uh, he wants to plan a new heist that has to do with the the rice fields and the the rice they're making and stealing rice. And she's like, "Well, no, I've worked with these people. These people depend on this rice at the end of the season. That's how they get paid." And uh, so it's a really good mix of these like uh, this you know um, again it issues drama and crime thriller uh but from a filmmaking standpoint and the director's name is something desantis i can't remember his first name um henry it's not henry it's probably giuseppe or something. oh yeah yeah uh, <laughs> uh i don't know if that's racist or it does seem somehow uh, <laughs> wrong but it, you know something italian um yeah um uh the 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 movie is so full of life it's so visceral and tactile and it's like sweaty and there's movement and the way that it depicts these crane shots of the rice fields are beautiful but then it also shows these people like partying at the end of the night where they're dancing and the these women are unbelievably sexy hmm. um uh, even you know armpit hair and all uh, it's it's very, uh very um sensual is the word i'm looking for it's a very yeah. sensual movie um, when was it made? 1949. Hmm. Uh, and it's terrific. I would, I would highly recommend watching it. Um, 
to anyone definitely pick up the criterion blu-ray it's it's worth a watch uh yeah you won't you won't regret it bitter rice bitter rice is what it's called all right so my last movie was a rewatch though i have not seen it i'm gonna say uh 18 19 years okay um and it is the companion film for this week's more than one lesson uh which is about the revenant and it is sean penn's the crossing guard uh starring jack nicholson david morse robin wright and others and it is about this well it's kind of the there's a parallel narratives so Jack Nicholson is the father of a girl that was killed by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the drunk driver is played by David Morris. He, he was uh, sentenced to five years in prison. He is now getting out. And Jack Nicholson uh, has decided that he's going to kill him. So, the, so he confronts him and then they have, a discuss, they have a conversation and Nicholson decides to give him a little bit more time to live his life and to think about this. And so you see these two men over the course of the next three days try to contem- try to really come to grips with what's about to happen. You know, David Morris that like I could I could die, but maybe I deserve it because I killed this little girl. And then Jack Nicholson, whose life has basically been just defined by his grief for the last five years to the extent that it actually drove his wife away, played, played wonderfully by Angelica Houston mm. uh, and then caused him to drink a lot and just kind of live this life of debauchery. There's there's some very interesting stuff going on in the film and the performances are really, are, are really good. I, I appreciate Nicholson's unselfconscious performance because this is not a likable character and he is willing to be as unlikable as the character is. And so I, I like that a lot. Um, Sean Penn as a filmmaker is as one would expect, like Sean Penn is as an actor often, which is, overwrought Mm -hmm. and constantly telegraphing how important it is and all that sort of thing. Um, it feels a little film schooly from time to time. This was his second film. I think he improves greatly between this and his third film, the pledge. Um, but he does know how to work with actors and he does get a good performance out of Nicholson. Not that that's difficult to do, but he gets an unconventionally good performance out of Nicholson. Um, did you ever see the, um, September 11th anthology thing. No. Um, he directed one of those and it is the grossest of them. Gross in what way? Uh, morally maybe. Oh wow. Okay. Um, but Ernest Borgnine's in it. I like like that. Yeah. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, but yeah, the crossing art, I'm I'm trying to think it's not a movie I would necessarily recommend, but there's a lot in it. It has a pretty good third act and what's odd. So I haven't seen this movie since, you know, it came out in, I think, 95, 96, might be a little bit later, but around there. And I think I saw it when I was 17, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen it since then. I had a surprisingly good memory for that movie. Hmm. Uh, so I guess, you know, mission accomplished, because some of the images stuck in my head, particularly the image, you know, the last image of the film, which one could say is, uh, it is hokey, it is overwrought, but I think by that time partially because of the acting it is earned and so the movie's on netflix feel free to check it out if you want first obviously subscribe to movie and then watch uh dodsworth yeah but after that head on over to netflix and uh if you're interested it's not a perfect movie by any stretch it is often kind of bad 
but it's still in, it's interesting and um, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot going on emotionally that I think is is intriguing. All right. Um, do you also want to start with the TV? Sure. Okay. So I watched Survivor, and David, I will say, this last episode uh, set the record. Three meta, uh, medevacs this season. It is the most of any season. Wow. And so they're literally, literally down to the final five, and then number five had to be uh, medically evacuated for reasons that are uh, unfortunate. Uh, they're, they're always unfortunate, but this one's really sad. Okay, I don't want to know. So, um, Sounds like yeah. it's going to bum me out. <laughs> but it definitely does. We, we now go, we're going into the finale with a really interesting final four, and... I can't, and that's the thing, I cannot imagine this finale not being interesting. Um, and so I'm, I think, I can't say it until the finale, but I think this is one of the best seasons they've ever done. All right. Um, I'm actually going to do a real quick twofer because I just want to mention one thing about Silicon Valley, which okay. is that uh, in the last movie journal, I predicted that Stephen Tobolowsky's character was introduced as being so nice, accommodating, gregarious, and avuncular that he was sure to be a villain. Uh, and I was right. He is okay. turning out to be a terrific villain. Nice. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about. Uh, I, what I do want to mention is The Last Man on Earth and how crazy good this show keeps on getting hmm. and how much it continues to fulfill the promise of the first episode of the pilot episode, which it then squandered for most of the first season. And, uh, I really happy with what Fox is letting them get away with in terms of being possibly the weirdest show on TV because it's a sitcom that takes place after most of the world has died yeah. from a virus. And it, doesn't let you forget that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's very funny and often absurdly funny, uh, but it can also be crushingly sad and bleak because these people lost everyone. Yeah. And they are constantly at risk of losing more people because they have no medical care or no sense of what to do with their lives. They're still drinking, you know, wine and beer and eating chips from before Things went like they haven't, yeah. they're not planning for the future. It's like this group of people, there's like a, an inherent sadness to the fact that they're trying to maintain uh, normalcy, which leads to sort of standard friendship, workplace slash domestic com like sitcom jokes. But there's an underlying, like you guys are delusional. Like yeah. you need to be like restarting. You need to be, planting things you need to be like teaching yourself how to do shit not just like sitting around this house playing tennis and drinking wine like uh yeah it's i don't want to say what happened in this most recent episode which is called smart and stupid but uh it was devastating Hmm. um and uh i'm so into this show all right what's next for you uh i went back and watched a few episodes of futurama on netflix okay and I've seen all of Futurama and, uh, you know, it never hurts to go back to revisit and, you know, I'll just speak in generalities, but, uh, I didn't forget this, but again, it is nice to be reminded just how smart of a show on every level from a sci-fi standpoint, from a comedy standpoint, from a character standpoint, mm-hmm. um, that they managed to make Fry who is maybe one of the dumbest characters we've ever seen on TV. 
that they managed to make us still care about him and want him to be. We recognize that he's still trying, especially when it comes to Leela, that he's still putting in the effort, but that he just messes things up. And we, we want good things for him and we want good things for Leela. And it just, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a great show. Uh, the one, the, the episode that, really st- stuck with me. I mean, they all stick with me to a certain extent, but the one I really want to talk about, I don't remember the name of it, but it's, it's a, a later episode, uh, in which Fry, the professor, n- by the way, not unlike what you just described for last man on earth, Fry, the professor and Bender get in a time machine that can only move forward. And they're going to go a minute in the future. Cause they're just going to, you know, uh, just going to test it out. But then the professor falls on the lever and, uh, they wind up going like a million years in the future or something Mm -hmm. like that. Maybe not a million, but enough that, Oh, civilization is over or it's just been destroyed. And so they just feel like, okay, so here's what we need to do because this time machine can only go forward. Let's keep going until we, let's go to a time where they have invented a backwards going time machine. <laughs> and it's like, this is brilliant. Let's keep doing Let's keep going. And so you get to see like different depictions of the future, which is funny, but there's also this realization. And so they get to a point where they, they have made it to a society where they've invented a, 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 a backwards time machine. Uh, and then Bender is angry at them. And so he, uh, shoves the lever down and they just keep going forward until they get to the end of the world. Like there's literally nothing on earth that is living. And so like the idea of the backwards time machine is the only chance they had, the only hope they had. And so they, the three of them, it kind of dawns on them Fry particularly that like everyone I know is long dead. Like I now have to grieve over everyone and it's very sad, but also there's a lot of humor in there and it's just a, it's a great episode. I, I wish I could remember what it was called, but it's, okay. but that one really stuck with, it. I watched a number of the other ones, kind of some old standbys that I enjoy. Did you watch war is the H word? I did not. Cause I've seen that too many times already, but that Such does a funny have episode that does have one of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite fry moments, which might be yours as well, uh-huh. where he is crouched behind some barrels and he's looking at a helicopter and he's like, and he says to, you know what I'm talking about? And he says to himself, yeah, I just he goes, he goes, okay, I just get, I need to jump over this fence, knock out those guards and steal the helicopter. At which point you see Leela jump over the fence, knock out the guards and he goes, Hey, I did it. Wait, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> that Fry can forget who he is, is one yeah. of them. Like they write him, they write smart, uh, stupid, so smart like the other one just uh it's an episode where uh they're looking back at some security footage uh-huh. uh, uh fry and bender are looking back at some security footage and then in the footage bender shows up and fry goes bender look it's that guy you are <laughs> like you don't get you don't get smarter than that like yeah. that's amazing uh, um, it just makes me want to go back and watch all of it over again one of my favorite like hidden like visual joke or just words uh Words on the background jokes mm-hmm. is and words words the H word when the they go to the convenience store at the beginning, which is the whole mm-hmm. reason they join the army is to get a discount on gum. Yes, ham flavored gum, I believe. Yeah, and the sign says uh, cashier has less than twenty dollars in checking account. Yes, <laughs> uh, one of my others Great is joke. when they they have the Madison Cube Garden 
and then they have the marquee and it simply and it says no gambling but no has quotes around it (laughs) (laughs) all right um next thing i did this week for hey watch this i caught up on the season up to this point of archer and i said this last season because two seasons ago when they did the vice season i wasn't super into it and i said last season looks like they're getting their mojo back uh uh, it turns out i was wrong because this season they're back okay they're so back so strong uh that archer in its seventh season for sure to be this good in its seventh season is like yeah unheard of and archer has been knocking out of the park week after week uh, uh this year um I'm so nuts about it because I, you know, the show always, and I think this is one of the things that I didn't like about season five, the, the vice season, um, is that it always walks the line of its, it's, uh, running gags spilling over to being catchphrases and yes. catchphrases are lazy. Whereas running gags, if done right, yes, can be funny. And, this time they've got it right. <clears throat> they've even added, they've even added a couple of new, like just turns of phrase. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, uh, classic Archer is like saying like, you know, and then not following yeah. through on it. And now this, this season's one apparently is, well, you say that. Mm. And that they're like, they're finding funny ways to use that over and over again. Um, they are also, I mean, I don't want to get too like heady about it, but, um, they are also developing Archer a little bit as nice. a character. Uh, we, uh, in some ways, like in one way we actually see a flash, but there's a, he, um, so this season they're private eyes. They're no longer su- secret agents. They're okay. private eyes in Los Angeles, which has been fun because Archer for being an animated show, all of its characters are based on real, like modeled after real people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of its locations are too. So even though it's an animated show, as a Los Angeles resident, I'm saying like, Hey, I know where that is. Hey, there's, like, there's country folks again. <laughs> well, not that, but, uh, yeah, they are like using, um, real location. That's cool. But they're, uh, they had an episode where the people that hired, um, Archie are Archie Archer are the two, uh, bullies who bullied him in prep school. And we oh. get a flashback and we get to see Archer shaken, you know, um, yeah. losing his Archer cool. Uh, and then he sort of gets some of his confidence back when he gets to remind himself and his bullies that, oh yeah, I've killed scores of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's a, it's, it's terrific this season. Boy, oh boy, that's great. Cause uh, I think the last one I saw was, was vice. Okay. Which, yeah. yes, I agree with you. They're also doing a season long arc. There's standalone episodes, but there's a season long arc that they're adding to, uh, each, each week. Um, and that has led to some recurring guest uh, voices. Um, the three most notable ones are uh, Pat Oswalt, J.K. Simmons, and Keegan Michael Key. Nice. Uh, no more Christian Slater, unfortunately. But uh, that is, yeah. Could, was he there for Vice? I think he might have been introduced in Vice, okay. but he's in pretty much all of season six. Oh, okay. Then, okay. Then, all right. Yes. Then I have only seen him in Vice because I remember okay. seeing him in I think one or two episodes yeah. or something. Um, yes, uh, and I enjoy. And he plays himself but not really right he plays a character named slater yes but he's not an actor he's not an actor he's, not actor. he's Christian a cia yeah. yeah that's kind of amazing um okay so the last thing that i watched is probably the last thing you watched it's the amazing race the amazing race this was such a terrific episode yes it i was. know why you're bummed well i'm because bummed your team you know what more so than my team being gone one could make an argument that the last competitive team is gone 
you know, flukes can happen, but I feel like Tyler and Corey have this, right? Oh, I see what you're saying. The last competitive team other than Tyler and yes. Corey. Yeah, I mean, you, you never know. Uh, yeah, but it is it, it is kind of a wonder that it's Tyler and Corey and then these two teams. Like, yeah. if you were to, after the first episode, have picked, I don't think you would have ended up with, yeah. with this. Uh, I have liked seeing Tyler and Corey, um, you know, because they were like, and they still are goofy joking guys but you've seen their competitive edge week by week come out more and more yes uh in a way that hasn't turned me off of them it hasn't made them uh repellent to me but um it's 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 interesting to see the 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 effect that it has it reminds me okay for reality show aficionados one of my favorite reality competition characters or contestants, I guess is the right word of all time is Elise from season one of America's next top model who was the like too smart, too cool for the room gal who like auditioned cause her friends dared her to and got it and like had this attitude the whole time about how she, cause she was in medical school. She was like, I'm better than this and had this attitude. And then over the course of the season, you see her, really start to want to win America's next top model. Yeah. It is a fascinating, uh, transition. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's, uh, that's kind of where Tyler and Corey were, which is like, we're just these two goofy guys. Like we're going to go and be silly and we'll make right. it as far as we can. Get some advertisement for our YouTube channel. Exactly. Yeah. And then once they're, once they realize like, Holy shit, <laughs> we, we really could win this thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it really came out, but like, think how amazing, you know, and I, I'm I'm one that I tend to lament Amazing Race more than you do. But um, when I say like, "Oh, why couldn't this have happened?" You're like, "That's the nature of the race," uh-huh. and I get that. But think how exciting this last episode would be if it were the Frisbee guys, Bernie and Ashley, and Tyler and Corey. You know, because then it's just like I really don't know who who. Yeah, would no, win. that's true. That's true. Whereas this, you have Tyler and Corey, who likely will win. Matt and Dana who I don't want to win. Sorry, I want Matt to win. <laughs> and then there's Sherry and Cole, who've grown on me significantly. But I also don't have, I don't have a great deal of faith in them. Yeah. And but I also like, wouldn't be that excited. I know we all won. think, like you said, that Tyler and Corey are going to win, but all they need is one sure. bad cab bad ride. Bad cab ride. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, but... Uh, <clears throat> But I think they've they've had, for the most part, pretty sound judgment. That's another thing is if you have a bad cab, you need to realize you have a bad cab and get out as soon as you can mm-hmm. and try to get a good one. And I feel like that's something that they have that other teams that have been in that position haven't. Um, but, that's, uh, but that's the thing. I think they're the most likely to win. But the, at this point, they're the only team there that I genuinely want to win. Sherry and Cole, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be happy for Sherry. Uh, Matt and Dana, I'd be... F- I'd be like, hey, good for you, Matt, but I don't care much about them. Whereas well, if maybe it were, he can buy Dana a bunch of chickens and then she'll just be nice all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> or maybe it just, uh, but my, yeah, I mean, um, I know you were on team, you were team Bernie and Ashley. I've been team Tyler and Corey for most of the season. So this has been great for me to see them I, go so far. Yeah. And like, and I wanted them at the end because I like a fun finale. And if yeah. they, if they had won against Bernie and Ashley or the Frisbee guys who I also liked, yeah. if they had won against them, fine, at least it was exciting. But like Jen and I, you know, I talked about survivor going into the finale, going into the finale, we have a final four 
all of whom have a genuine argument they can make. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be competitive no matter what. This one, it's not, and if any of the four of them win, I'm kind of okay with it. This one, it's not merely that there's only one team that's really great, but it's that it's that's also the only team that I would actually genuinely be excited about winning. The other teams, I'd have to get myself on board with winning, and yeah. they're also not likely to win. So, but still, just, let's talk about the very end of this last episode, okay? Because, uh, and I talked about this a little bit on Hey, Watch This. I've been watching long enough, and at this point, you probably have too. That you start to be able to see through the show a little bit, yes. like you start to see like. Uh, oh, I can tell based on the way this person's acting in their uh, interview or, yeah. or just like, you know, the way that they're editing this. I can tell what's really going on. They got me this time. Yeah. Because they edited it like they always do to make it look close. And all of, usually I'm able to tell, like, this isn't as close. Like, look where the sun is here and the sun is yeah, here. Yeah. Like, this isn't as close as it actually actually is. And this one, I felt like they were pulling the same shit. Yeah. Except it turned out to be the team that I didn't think it was. Yeah. Uh, that was when, when Sherry and Colt came around the corner, I stood up off the couch. <laughs> um, I was really surprised. Uh, yeah. That's always, that's always fun. Yeah. It's, it's re- cause yeah, Jen and I do the same thing is like anytime it shows two teams, one significantly, not maybe it's not significantly, but definitely behind the other. And it shows like it's cutting back and forth and Oh wait, the team that was ahead, they seem to be stuck in traffic now. What could happen? And then the team that was ahead wins. Yeah. You know, uh, and so Jen and I watch it. And so anytime they try to do that, Jen and I will be like editing. Uh-huh. And then, but every once in a while, it doesn't happen a lot. It, it probably doesn't even happen once in season. Yeah. But every once in a while, they'll get me. Yeah. And they did get me with this one as well. I really expected to see Bernie and Ashley coming around that corner. Yeah. And I feel like they probably edited there was probably like you're saying editing that was probably going on further back than we realized is probably probably happened is that Bernie and Ashley probably didn't finish as early as the editing made it seem they did. And so we already had, they tricked us, you know, that saying you got to get up pretty early in the morning. They did. They got up earlier and they tricked us earlier. Yeah. It's it's a thing that happens on survivor all the time is you hear about the winners edit and uh, but then you also hear about the boot edit, which is to say, hey, we sure are seeing a lot from this person in this episode. We haven't seen much of them. Oh, yeah. got it. Right. That's because they want us to have a sense of the person that's leaving. But then there's the winner's edit where it can start in like episode one or two and they just build it up and build it up. And you think, like, oh, it's like, it seems like this is pretty obvious. And it's like, oh, they might also be setting us up for the biggest nosedive <laughs> of like any player ever, which does happen from time to time. So at this point, the editors are pretty savvy to what we are looking for. Yeah. Um, one more thing and then we'll stop. And the episode's probably cut off by this point anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we can fix Let's, that. Yeah. There was a Top Chef season that did uh, a great thing in the first episode. They, what they did is they started with like five more contestants than they usually start with. And the idea was over the course of the them doing their challenges in the first day of Top Chef, Top Chef um, one of the judges would be walking, the judges would be walking around and they could just tap someone on the shoulder and say, I don't like what you're doing. You're out. They could send them home day one before they even get to an elimination. And so they set up one guy as being, this guy's going to be the villain of the season. Yeah. And then 25 minutes into the show, he like messes up butchering a, a side of meat and Tom Cleekio or whoever is like, you're out of here. And it was 
I know it was completely manipulated, but it was one of the most satisfying things I've ever seen in reality TV to see someone so arrogant and so pompous. And it was clearly all done in editing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, the, to, to have that happen, that was very well done. Yeah. Uh, I like when reality TV editors know that we know their game. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This far in they, they get it. Yeah. All right. Thanks.